0: These are times when some people and groups are demonized and discriminated against, when political rhetoric is hateful and insulting, and, of course, when incidents such as the synagogue shootings in Pittsburgh and other violent acts send the nation into collective shock. What's it doing to our collective psyche? I spoke recently with Dr. Anton Hart, a visiting New York psychologist and psychoanalyst, who is an expert on post-traumatic reaction to incidents that cause alarm or stress. I asked him where he believes we are today in view of repeated exposure
1: to violence, hateful rhetoric, and discrimination. I think that um, I'm very concerned about our country and the division, separateness, and the uh, exploitation of that separateness for political purposes. I see people retreating in fear to their different corners, and I see that fear being stoked and exploited. You know, one of the things that we've talked about on this program uh,
0: on a number of occasions is the fact that this political rhetoric seems to have enabled a segment of the population that might not have surfaced, that these seething issues, the the hate, the vitriol, has just been below the surface apparently for a long time and now has been allowed to kind of bubble up. Do you see it kind of that way?
1: I do. I think that... um, that, that people are complicated, they have many aspects of themselves, and they follow cues from their leaders and from public figures, uh, particularly when they're at the margins, quite frankly, uh, emotionally. And so when leaders legitimize hate and fear-mongering, then that um, is closer to the surface than we might wish that it were. A number of people obviously are comfortable with this
0: kind of environment. Maybe they've been waiting to become a part of it for a long time, but a great many others are not. Uh, I've heard it referred to as a form of PTSD, which might be too strong a term, but in terms of of those people dealing with what's going on, what,
1: what can they do? What can we do to help? Well, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, s- starts out as an official diagnostic term that refers to people who have been traumatized seriously, yeah. life-threatening situations, but not just life-threatening situations, also other profoundly emotionally traumatic experiences. And after the trauma, it sticks with some people and they suffer from it. So, um, But it's not such a far stretch to identify PTSD even in cases where there's not some obvious trauma, like war trauma or mm-hmm. seeing somebody get hurt or almost getting killed or something like that. Because people make emotional linkages and attribute meaning to situations. And that can lead to profound trauma in individuals. And how does that present? How does that manifest? Well, it really is quite variable. Sometimes it manifests as depression, anxiety, usually there's some aspect of it that feels unexplained to the person who's suffering from it, like something comes over me. I feel fearful, but I don't know why. I feel depressed, but I don't know why. It also manifests itself behaviorally through addictions, through addictive behaviors, through changes in relationships and stresses that come out in relationships. In a way, post-traumatic stress disorder manifests itself in every way that human beings suffer. And uh, so it it can be hard to diagnose because there are so many diagnostic categories that have overlap with symptoms of PTSD. You know, I
0: mentioned uh, the PTSD quotient, if you will, to a a veteran friend of mine once. And he said, how dare you uh, equate uh, something like being concerned and tra- traumatized by what's going on politically with what I went through in Vietnam when I was being shot at every day. He said it's just a totally different thing. They're not
1: the same. And you're
0: kind of saying, well, they're closer than most people might think.
1: Yeah, I I, I can understand how that guy would feel that way yeah. because when you've been through profound war trauma, it it can be hard to imagine how a person – who's been through something not literally life-threatening, can exhibit the same symptoms Mm -hmm. that you do, having gone through a matter of life and death. Mm -hmm. The tricky thing about human beings is that because we have minds, we attribute meaning to things, and we make connections and links between experiences and things like life and death. Mm -hmm. So it can take a a small incident that might feel small to somebody from the outside, but because of the meanings that are part of it, uh, it can feel more life-threatening than might be obvious to the observer who's mm-hmm. not invested in the same way.
0: You know, when we're talking about uh, the way that this might uh, might present, and you mentioned addiction among other things. Could this spate of violence that we're seeing uh, recently relatively recently be a part of it? Can the opioid addiction issue be a part of it
1: i think as a as a society as a nation we're arguably collectively suffering from post traumatic yeah. uh, post traumatic stress yeah. in the sense that um, we are living in a country that is a a post slavery nation and in in slavery in that kind of oppression. Everybody suffers, Mm. not just those who were enslaved, but those who enslaved as well, um, who can't stand to bear the responsibility, the shame, the guilt associated Mm -hmm. with our nation's legacy in that regard. And so I think what we're seeing has to do with suffering from both sides of the equation of slavery, quite frankly.
0: So it can be a collective issue, involving the country as opposed to just individuals. Uh,
1: I think that we could talk not in an official diagnostic way, but uh, in in a kind of um, social observation way about um, our nation as being in a time of trauma and stress. And when there is such trauma and stress, people retreat in fear and... Unfortunately, people come forward in anger. Mm -hmm. Anger and violence often represent the human tendency to try to undo fear and vulnerability with something uh, much more um, uh, powerful that gives them the feeling of being in control. And this can be cumulative? Yes, it can be cumulative, absolutely. That's, That's one of the interesting things about post-traumatic stress reactions, and I'm talking not mm-hmm. from the diagnostic and statistical manual, but from the descriptive term of post-traumatic stress. stress can be a, we can have a one-time trauma, and we can also have a, a cumulative trauma, a buildup of what we sometimes in, in uh, psychoanalysis or academia call microaggressions, mm-hmm. the whole notion of small things that add up and are taken in and swallowed by a person that come to uh, create a toxic level of stress in an individual and can lead to post-traumatic stress.
0: Much of what we're talking about, I guess, just to be clear, is really kind of our reaction to the political rhetoric and some of the things that have been triggered by that uh, rhetoric or the way we might think have been triggered by it. But you also have spoken of something called uh, discriminatory trauma. Yeah. What is that?
1: Yeah, I I have talked about discriminatory trauma, the discriminatory gesture, and by that I mean uh, a way of understanding uh, experiences that a person might have that on the face of it seem innocuous. Like you're walking in, in a store and you're followed by a clerk. Because you're a person of color, Mm -hmm. and you see that other people in the store who aren't of color, who are white people, aren't followed in the same way, aren't scrutinized. So we might call that a discriminatory gesture, and we could observe that even though, what's the big deal? You're simply followed in a store. Why Mm -hmm. are you making such a big deal over it? The store doesn't want shoplifters. But the experience is profoundly disturbing mm-hmm. because it represents a, a form of profiling and arguably of racism such that you are uh, uh, impacted in a way that immediately links to the, his- the, the history of oppression of your people, the history of slavery, of Jim Crow, mm-hmm. and the persistence of those phenomena in present society, even though under other names.
0: Would that be as serious as the situation you just described about entering the store and being followed? Would that have the same kind of impact as that same person walking out of the store and being called the N-word or being told that you can't have this apartment uh, and the implication is it's because you're black?
1: Yeah. I think it could. Yeah. I, you know, it's never for us to, to determine which – experiences should have which kinds of mm-hmm. impact because it's always a subjective experience involved however absolutely these things are linked together and and being black in this country today means that there, you're always potentially subject to real violence not just a discriminatory gesture but a discriminatory act mm-hmm.
0: Well, how do you overcome this? I mean this is your business, basically uh, taking people who have been traumatized one way or the other. Um, how do you take this take that case that we just mentioned here what would you do what would you recommend? How would you deal and treat a person who has been experiencing
1: this Well, I think as a psychologist as a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, I'm interested in helping people talk mm-hmm. and uh, as As neutral as that may sound, talk really can have enormous power because when we talk, we put our experience into words, we formulate it, and in that formulation, experience is rendered differently from the way it was before it had been verbalized, before we had talked about it. When we talk, we put experience into symbolic form, and then we can think about it. We can think in different ways from experience that we just had that we haven't talked about. And so the patients in my practice, some of whom have gone through experiences like this, um, are people who I encourage to talk about what they have experienced. And I try to listen closely to the details of their experience. And in my listening closely and being interested and curious about it, they can start to become interested and curious too.
0: I'm having a little difficulty thinking that this would work. I mean, particularly if it's been an ongoing process of of whether it be discrimination or trauma of another sort.
1: Well, you haven't been in psychoanalysis, I guess. (laughs) Not yet.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you, these days I think I may be closer than I I would like to be.
1: You know, uh, it sounds rather innocuous what Mm -hmm. I'm describing, but what what I haven't captured in what I've said so far is the way that the talk uh, helps a person also feel less alone when they have somebody who's there really understanding what they've been through, or at least trying to, and experiencing the pain that they're carrying from certain experiences and being able to think about that pain at the same time. One of the most dangerous, toxic things in people's emotional lives is having painful experience, but leaving it unformulated leaving it unarticulated and therefore not being able to really think about it and yet being subject to it
0: it has a cathartic quality as opposed to having it s- steep inside you can release it somehow i suppose is kind of what you're saying
1: well yes release it catharsis is part of the the the, the process but i i would emphasize something slightly different i would say that we can actually own experiences and integrate them into other aspects of ourselves when we articulate them. So it's less about getting rid of them through catharsis and more about claiming them and finding ways to understand what we're going through and what we've been through.
0: How would you deal, and this is a, a hypothetical to a large degree, but how would you deal with the people of, of Jewish faith, for instance, who are going through quite a period now following the shooting in Pittsburgh, and in particular those people who who are in Pittsburgh who have kind of experienced this, uh, certainly they've been traumatized by that experience how would How would you approach them?
1: I would approach them with an open heart and with love first and foremost um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm very upset about w- what has happened at the, that synagogue. Mm-hmm. And I um, have a Jewish mother myself mm-hmm. and an African-American father. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it's a double whammy, I guess, in some ways, isn't it?
1: Yeah. In in this country, yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly at this yeah. time, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we, we have to care about each other, and we have to help people process severe, profound trauma in the ways that they need to do it. We can't force people to talk. We have to open the doors to people talking when they can. There's no one-size-fits-all, but the main thing is that we want to encourage people to uh, find a safe enough context within which to talk. Sometimes that's psychotherapy. Sometimes that's to mm. a, a spiritual leader. Mm. Sometimes it's to a friend. But all of it really amounts to giving people a, an opportunity to formulate what they've been through, and how it's affecting them in order to start the process of healing. And unfortunately, that can't happen overnight. It can't happen fast.
0: Is it uh, realistic to think that the people in St. Louis, the Jewish community in St. Louis, could be as impacted as the Jewish community in Pittsburgh by what happened in Pittsburgh, Hmm. even though they're a thousand miles away?
1: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. We'd, We'd like to cordon off certain areas of mm-hmm. trauma and 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 have the problem localized to like a certain mile radius, mm-hmm. and we wish that things wouldn't have the power to spread as vividly and, and emotionally as they do. And yet we know that trauma can be uh, far-reaching and contagious, particularly in the area of the internet, where people are brought right in to... Horrific scenes and hear from people involved and so w- when you have a person who has a history, uh, people who have lost relatives in the Holocaust, for example, mm-hmm. and they see something like this happen uh, they're 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 vulnerable potentially to feeling like, "Oh my God, it's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. This is all coming back. We might have wished that it was gone, Nazism but we see that it's not. And that can be enormously frightening and traumatizing to a person thousands of miles away. You know, you just brought up
0: something that I've wondered about. Is it possible, you know, we all are concerned about about the trauma that could follow an event at a synagogue, let's say, or a church or a concert hall. Is it possible to have something like pre-PTSD fearing attending such an event?
1: I think that people uh, get phobic reactions understandably they pair situations that they've seen with this, the the situations that they walk into in their everyday lives and they start to feel frightened that that these places are linked to horrific experiences mm-hmm. and events and that happens regularly that's a that's a basis for a phobic reaction there are ways of responding to that, one way is not forcing yourself to be anywhere that you don't want to be, particularly when you're under stress. But on the other hand, if you can summon the strength to bring yourself back to the place that is your place, Mm -hmm. not that of the one who terrorized, but your place, then sometimes, particularly if you have a sense of supportive community, you can reestablish and reclaim space that has been crowded out by your own anxiety.
0: We've got a collective, we've established that this can be a collective situation that an entire country can be affected by, the trauma, the PSD, however we want to characterize it. What's your best advice, uh, given your profession, to all of us to to cope with what uh, may or may not lie ahead?
1: Well, there's coping, and then there's also trying to do things that are proactive to make the world a place that would be better for you, which could be a form of coping in and of mm-hmm. itself. I think one of the main things that I see is that people need to go on a news diet, uh, mm-hmm. internet, cable TV. There's a way that we have to know about what's going on in our world, but we can be bombarded mm-hmm. by by it also. And that can exacerbate the trauma that we're already feeling on the one hand, and it can also make us numb to certain things that are going on in the world that we really should not become numb to if we're going to work to change our world. Hmm. So that's one of the main pieces of advice that I would give people is be thoughtful about the news you consume. Do some reading and listening (laughs) to public radio rather than watching the graphic images on television. You'll still get the information, but you might not be as bombarded uh, by what you see in the same way.
0: You've struck on exactly what got me interested in, in talking about this, exactly. Because, you know, you watch every night, as, as I do. I don't want to. I'm tired of the, this rhetoric and the kind of the language that's being used. But I can't not watch. And that's a big issue for me. I mean, it's, it's not easy to walk away from it when so much is riding on what is being discussed.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that we should bury our heads in the sand so I don't want to deliver that yeah. message but I do think that we should realize that we we need to get the information about what's going on but then uh, give ourselves some time to think and process mm-hmm. one way that trauma happens is when there's so much coming at you and you don't have time to think you don't have time to process what you're going through and that leads to the kind of cumulative trauma mm-hmm. that in some cases can actually lead to post traumatic stress disorder if we give ourselves a diet of these things, then we have time to process and reflect and think about what we want to do going forward.
0: And we can cross our fingers and hope that uh, things will change, that the rhetoric will change, and that all the things that are bothersome now will one day go away. I don't think that's going to happen.
1: Well, I don't think it's going to happen quite like that, but I think that we can work for a better world where people are interested in making contact with people who are different from themselves rather than keeping them away, Uh, a world where we see ourselves as citizens of of a world rather than simply a nation, and that we care about the world and about our planet. And that if if we have that orientation, change can be possible in ways that are unimaginable from where we sit right now. Yeah, it,
0: it's always struck me that uh, that people who have uh, animus toward a certain group or what have you, that uh, once they get to know members of that group, they find they're changing their minds, that they're not as bad as they had Im- imagined uh, at, at uh, the earlier point.
1: I think that's true. I think the function of what we call othering, yeah. the defensive operation of keeping the other at a distance and feeling like you know the other already before even encountering that person, uh, it, it, that, that plays an enormous role in people's creating a sense of emotional safety for themselves. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's at great cost. By othering, keeping people at a distance, not getting to know them, we, we operate in a rather rigid way that requires uh, segregating ourselves and usually oppressing others mm-hmm. in the process. When we make contact when we enter into dialogue with other people, when we try to listen with as much of an open heart and mind as we can, really amazing things can happen.
0: He, she, or they are really not as bad as I thought they were after all.
1: That's right. I, I, we're all human beings. Hmm. Uh, the, the famous uh, American psychiatrist Harry Stack Sullivan said, we're all much more simply human than otherwise. And 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 I think that people who are able to let themselves speak to other people who are different from themselves regularly Mm -hmm. find that out.
0: Any final thought you'd like to leave us with, Doctor?
1: I would say that we want to become more and more curious about people who are different from ourselves rather than less. We don't want to go with Mm -hmm. the rhetoric of stay away from those people because they're dangerous. Don't even... Think of them as human beings. Think of them as something else instead. We want to be interested in the other person who we don't know, who we might get to know, and who could change us and change and expand the way we think about our own lives and the world. If we can cultivate curiosity, which sometimes happens in the psychoanalytic office and sometimes happens Mm. just on the street when making contact with your neighbor, then... That's our best hope, I think, of moving toward a caring, uh, uh, open society.
0: Rather than demonizing the other, which is what we're doing today to a large degree.
1: I think, unfortunately, that is the case.
0: Thanks to psychologist Dr. Anton Hart.